So in the letter to the Romans, Romans 8.28, Paul says this. He says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his promise. And we say, seriously, all things? Really? Even the really dark stuff? Even the painful times in my life, the stuff that I look back on and that season of darkness and I've tried to move on from it, but I just can't really see how God was there. I can't really see what he was doing. I just try now not to think about it, if I'm honest. Or now I'm in the thick of it and I'm up at night, that deadline, that situation, that broken friendship, that thing looming over me. And you tell me God is at work in all things, using this for my good? Or we say all things? Really? How how small does that go? The little day-to-day stuff? Like, like where I choose to sit in church? Like whether I go for a run today or tomorrow, whether I stay up and watch the football or not, whether where I choose to sit on the bus, how I get to work in the morning... The little stuff. And Paul says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I take it what we've seen in Esther, week by week by week, is something of this truth in action, a glimpse of this reality from the other side, this, this work, this, sorry, this verse worked out. And God's not mentioned, the kids have seen that, but yes, he's at work. And the little seemingly unimportant things feed into the big things, little streams feeding into a tributary, into a river, into the sea. And the dark and the painful things ultimately become good and glorious and joyful things. And that's what we see in these final couple of chapters. We see resolution and closure and happily ever after, at least to a point. The I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. But again, if you've just joined us today for the final instalment, and you miss the kids' slot, so far the story goes a bit like this. It looks like God was out of the picture. His people were in exile in Persia, away from home. His people are facing this horrible, extraordinary edict from Haman, the prime minister, that they are to be annihilated, all because Mordecai would not bow to him. And and God is not even mentioned, not even once. But it turns out he's not forgotten. He's raised Esther up to be queen, and she's beautiful, but more than that, she's wise. She has diplomacy, she has tact. And he's ordered events such as we see the book hinges on this number of amazing coincidences. The the right people, the right place, the right time. We see he's in control. And we're not there yet, but things have started to turn round. So last week, Haman ends up impaled on a pole, the pole that he had set up for Mordecai. Mordecai ends up with Haman's estate. And even though this initial edict cannot be overturned, a second one is put in place meaning God's people can defend themselves. It's a parallel edict. They now can strike back at their enemies. And what we get in these final chapters, 
9 and 10, is that in action. So firstly, verse 1 to 16 of chapter 9, we see reversal or reversals. What happens? Well, we see the outworking and the interplay of these two edicts. We see what happens at ground level. On the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. And you can see, you can put it in your diary, this, this dreaded day has arrived. And it's real. And the dates matter and they are noted down and they are recorded because people will remember them for years to come. They will look back and recall these events. But you see, now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. And no one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, satraps, governors and king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. There's, there's this unusual fear that seems to have gripped the Persians and those people living within Persia. All the different exiled peoples, all the leaders and satraps and people um, higher up the ladders, the governors, they're scared of the people of God, in part it seems through fear of Mordecai. I take it his extraordinary rise to power, but ultimately it seems unusual. Isn't this just another act of God behind the scenes? Another moment where he is not mentioned, but the people are terrified. Something outside of their control seems to alter the whole course of events. But what happens? What is the result of Edict number two? Well, as, as it's recounted for us, it's almost there in concentric rings. At the centre, we see Haman's family, his sons. Then outside of that, you see the citadel of Susa. Outside of that, you see the rest of Persia. So let's start in the middle, Haman's family. Remember, he was the instigator. He hated Mordecai. It was his fault this whole thing happened. And his sons received the same fate as he did, verse 7, 8, 9, 10. Do you remember he was bragging with his wife and friends about how great he was, about all that he had, about how amazing he was? We saw his fragile ego and now systematically God removes all those things he'd been trusting in. And boasting in. And he removes his hateful legacy and his line stops. It's striking that their names are listed initially. That makes us realise it's personal. In the Hebrew, the names are listed on top of each other, almost in the shape of a pole. It's striking as you read it, representing what happens to them. But the names as well, I'm told when translated, are all unpleasant. They point to evil and sin and self. Names like unrighteousness and poison and evil and bitterness and arrogance and lust. Again, maybe just a picture of, of what Haman was like. And they, like his father, like their father, see the Jewish people as enemies. They weren't singled out. They were simply among those enemies who attacked the Jews under Edict number one, but were destroyed among Edict number two. 
So at the centre we have Haman's sons, then outside we've got the capital of Susa, we've got Susa, the capital of Persia. It's the next concentric ring, verse 11. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, Jews have killed, destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what's your petition? It will be given you. What's your request? It will also be granted. The king seems impressed. 500 men have attacked and been done away with. But what do you think about what happens next? It's striking, isn't it? Esther's response in Susa is for another day of Edict 2. And again, do we feel uncomfortable with that? Is she just, does she have a sort of bloodthirsty streak? Is this fair? Another 300 men dead in Susa as a result of a second day of Edict 2. But think about it. Who were those 300 people? Because Edict 1 had closed. That window of opportunity to destroy the Jews had gone. They can't just kill them willy-nilly. It was for a particular period of time, for a particular opportunity. A particular unpleasant opportunity. And so the very fact that 300 more people are killed, I take it, shows they were enemies of the Jews and they attacked them outside of the time they were meant to. They were not playing according to the rules. Does that make sense? So maybe Esther had caught wind of this. Maybe that was why she asked for an extra day. We don't really know. But it's striking. If 300 people are killed, then seemingly they have attacked outside of the time they were meant to. And the Jewish people have defended themselves. So in the centre, Haman's son. Next ring, Susa. Outside of that, there is further bloodshed. The fear of the Jews may have fallen upon the people, but not everybody. Still 75,000 enemies within this enormous kingdom, 127 provinces, had attacked them and been killed. Doesn't that just show still the vast number of people who hate them? You would have to massively loathe them to take that chance of trying to kill them when they can now defend themselves. It's interesting too, isn't it, that there is no plundering. The author wants us to see that very clearly. That They were allowed to plunder. If you remember last week, Edict 2 said they could. But three times we're told they don't plunder their enemies. So verse 10, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Verse 15, they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And 16, they killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. In part, I take it that's showing that they weren't in it for, for selfish gain. This isn't about making a quick buck. And if the picture that's been painted of superficial Persia is anything to go by, then that would probably be in quite a surprise for people watching in. There's no plundering. These are people who long for their lives, who long for justice, who aren't just looking to steal their enemy's stuff. But I wonder if there's more going on. Do you remember the, one of the stories behind Esther from years gone by was the fact that Haman was an Amalekite, one of the enemies of God's people. In fact, more than that, he was an Agagite, a descendant from a particular king, King Agag. 
You can find the story in 1 Samuel 15, but if you remember, Saul is given the job of executing Agag, and he doesn't do that. He disobeys, he spares him, and he spares the best of the sheep and the goats. We don't quite know why. Essentially, he keeps the best plunder for himself. He, he creams the top for his own purposes. And so it's striking here that those enemies who have sided with King Agag are not plundered. Maybe there's some closure. They do what Saul got wrong. True justice is poured out. But that's not it. It's not the end of the story. We move on from reversal to remembering. They are to remember this event. And did you notice that the remembering flows out of what's already been happening? So feasting and joy and celebration naturally bubbles out of what's, what's been going on, both rural areas and in Susa, though a day later because the edict was extended. So verse 17, this happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy, verse 18. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested, made it a day of feasting and joy. So the remembering has already bubbled out. It's just a natural thing. But then Esther and Mordecai formalize this. They write letters to the entire nation, the peoples of God, reinforcing the opportunity to remember this every year and to not forget what has happened. And everyone is to remember verse 20. To see Mordecai have caused these events, he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, 127 provinces. All of them are to remember, it's to be a time of joy and feasting, whatever your social status, verse 22. He wrote to them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Even if you're poor, even if you have little, you mustn't be excluded from this time of feasting and joy and remembrance. And it's for all generations as well, verse 28. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews. Nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So, so geography should not exclude you, social status should not exclude you, and history should not exclude you. Mordecai and Esther say, remember, don't forget God's rescue in Persia. And so Purim today is still remembered amongst the Jewish people. What is it they remember? Well, a couple of things. I take it the sovereignty of God in protecting his people is a particular thing. So it's an interesting name, it's an interesting symbol to remember this event by. Verse 24 for Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pure, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back on his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur. So it's Purim. Do you remember back in week three, Haman consulted the Pur. He consulted Lot, fate, to work out when to attack God's people, when to destroy Mordecai. 
but he didn't consider the one who's in charge of everything. His confidence was in fate, luck. He thought he would win by casting lots, but he had forgotten the one who was in control. His confidence ought to have been in the Lord. The Lord who defends his people, who delivers his people, who raises up rescuers. People like Esther and Mordecai. And Esther and Mordecai, it's astonishing, they establish and confirm Purim. I think it's striking, of all the Old Testament festivals, this is the one, in a sense, not instituted by God. Do you notice that? Verse 29, Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority and confirmed this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves. It's a festival of joy, of feasting, of celebration. But did you notice as well? It's verse 31, a time of fasting and lamentation. It's a time to remember the pain too. I take it they remember both edicts. Edict 1, to destroy them. And Edict 2, to defend themselves. And so today... There is the fast of Esther. The day before Pyramid, from dawn till dusk, and it parallels something of the, the three-day fast that the Jews in Susa and Esther and her entourage went through before she approached King Xerxes. Back in chapter 5. A time of fasting to remember the pain. But then a time of feasting. They are to be a people who remember what God has done for them. I take it God knows that his people are forgetful. Isn't that true? We we are goldfish-like in our ability to think that it has all gone wrong or that God doesn't care or that we are still in our sin or we are too far gone for him. And we easily forget his track record and his character and what he's like and his kindness to us in rescuing a people like us. And life takes over and we, f- we need moments to stop and remember. To be told to stop and rem- remember his acts in history, his goodness and his kindness. Later on, Jesus would say of an even greater rescuer, a rescue that this rescue just partially points ahead to, a rescue where the true enemies of God would be finally destroyed. He said that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. God knows we're forgetful. We run after other things. 
God knows we're forgetful and we forget what he is like and what he has done. God knows that we're a people who too easily trust in the kingdom of Persia or its equivalent today, the kingdom in which we live. And so when we gather at church on a Sunday, we speak of and we sing of the gospel. We remember this rescue of Jesus, this gospel is central as to why we meet. Because we're so forgetful. Or perhaps as individuals through the week. We need to remember and be increasingly shaped by this truth, this rescue of the Lord Jesus for us. When God's astonishing, beautiful, captivating rescue of his people grabs our hearts, when it's increasingly front, front and central in our minds, then the pain doesn't go away, but perhaps we gain perspective. Perhaps day-to-day life is manageable. Our outlook and our perception of them is changed because we remember who he is and what he's done for us. I was thinking this morning, this Father's Day, wouldn't it be amazing to be a people who remember we don't have a distant God who's out there somewhere, a force, but a personal God, a Father who loves you, who longs for you to return to him, who cherishes you, who has compassion upon you. If we were a people like that who understood who our God is, who understood how much it cost him to rescue us, who understand his love and so see how it changes everything. Remember. And finally then the book finishes. In my mind, in a slightly frustrating place, it it seems to sort of finish in a kind of happily ever after type way, fairy tale ending. We see Esther and Mordecai reigning, verse 1 to 3. It's interesting, just to show that both people are in power, the emphasis at the end of chapter 9 seems to be Esther, and then at the start of chapter 10, or chapter 10 as it is, or three verses, the emphasis is Mordecai. It's both of them reigning. The Lord has raised them both up. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, Are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. So the reversal is complete. That is underlined for us. It is put in bold, highlighted, finished. At the big picture Bible story level, King Saul's failure is reversed. Mordecai and Esther and the people are faithful where Saul wasn't. The Amalekites are destroyed. There's no plunder taken. God's promise then ticked. Within Esther, the people of God in exile have been preserved and saved. The humble have been lifted up. The arrogant have been brought low. There's ongoing protection in place because Mordecai and Esther are using their positions well. And we've seen something of how God works. It's an extraordinary way. We don't see him. But he's using mixed people with wrong motives and messy lives. 
people who easily assimilate and blend into the kingdom around them, and the small things that feed into the big things, using little people, the reversal is complete. But I just wonder, are we not left wanting more? It's kind of happily ever after, but it's not. Look again at 10 verse 1. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. You see, in a very real sense, nothing's changed. The people have got a protected, sure, but here they are still away from home. They are still in the kingdom of Persia. They are still not in the land God promised them. They are still ruled by Xerxes, who's superficial and power-loving. They are still paying tributes, taxes to him. It's finished, but it's not finished. We're left looking ahead. Do you remember the, the promise to Abraham at the start of the Bible? It, it shapes the Bible. It shapes how we ought to read it. He promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. We've seen that bit in action in Esther. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Are they a great nation? Is his name great? Are they a blessing? Are all peoples being blessed through them? Not so much. Not yet. And today, the, the superficial, showy kingdom of Persia has gone, in that sense. But we still live in a very similar kingdom, with very similar values and very similar mindsets. We are ruled by kings, in a sense, remarkably like Xerxes. We still live in a very similar kingdom. Very similar values, very similar mindsets, ruled by kings who are very similar to Xerxes. Now we trust in a God, though, who is at work in all things. And yet we're still a people waiting for home, away from home, called to live in the world but not of the world, called to be faithful in an unfaithful culture. There's this tension, we're left looking ahead with a hope, longing for more. Longing for the, the Xerxeses of this world, if you like, to not have the power over us, the tributes, the taxes. We're longing for true rest. As John puts it in Revelation, we're longing for a time when the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. You see, at the time when the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God, are truly and finally and perfectly one. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we do look ahead to that time when the Lord Jesus returns. When the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and we will see you reigning forever. A time when all evil will be dealt with. A time when there will be no more 
King Xerxes to rule over us. A time when we will have true rest. But until then, in the midst of the mess now, would you help us please to trust you? To trust that you are at work, that you are working all things for the good of those who love you? And would you help us please to to not be assimilated into the culture? Help us to be different. Help us to stand out. And help us to remember. Help us to remember the rescue of the Lord Jesus. We pray that the cross would increasingly shape us. Shape who we are as individuals and who we are as a church. Thank you, Lord, that you are great. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are with us in the midst of the mess. Help us to trust you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing as we finish. Sing of the greatness of the Lord, his goodness, his power, his might, his majesty. Let's stand and sing together.